ladies and gentlemen, Robin Williams. Nanu Nanu cassettes, and welcome back <laughs> to the Black Ace Diaries podcast. Oh, we were a fast one. Yeah. yeah. Fastball. Right. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. <laughs> Nanu Nanu right yeah. back. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. We are three old friends learning everything we can about movies and TV, and hopefully teaching you in the process. I'm Robin. I'm Marcy. And I'm Adam. A man in a funny red suit stands in contrast to an all-black screen. He has a young face with a wild head of hair and sparkling blue eyes. A booming voice calls down to him, asking for an update from the planet Earth. The voice is Orson, and the man is Mork, an alien sent from his home planet Ork to study Earth's inhabitants. In this episode of Mork and Mindy, Mork transformed himself into an old man to provide company to Mindy's grandmother after the loss of her best friend. Mork delivers his usual silliness and improvisation until it's time to look up at the invisible Orson and recite the moral of the episode. Everything else here gets more valuable as it gets older. Wine, cheese, furniture, coins, everything except people. It was moments like this that turned Robin Williams into a superstar. There was no doubt the man was comically talented, having made a name for himself on stand-up stages across Southern California. But mainstream audiences fell in love with the quirky yet sentimental Mork. Over the next few decades, Robin Williams entertained and inspired generations of fans. Not only was he one of the greatest comedic minds of all time, he proved to be a remarkable actor as well. He entertained in a way that no one ever has, or likely ever will. He was a shining light despite the darkness lurking in his own world, a chaotic beacon that millions look to for warmth and a good laugh. So today, we're spending our first biography episode of the year on the incomparable Robin Williams. Oh my goodness, buckle the heck up. Are you ready for this? I don't think so. There's so much about him, it's... I just want to say right now, we're not going to talk about all of it because uh, yeah. Yeah. it'd be impossible. Mm-hmm. This would be, it would be like three parts at least. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yes. I don't know about you guys, but he's easily in my top five actors, don't you think? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. He's so, he's, I mean, he's got to be high on a lot of people's list. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Born on July 21st, one of the best days of the year. It's Marcy's birthday. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 1951 in Chicago, Illinois, Robin Williams was the only child of Robert and Lori Williams. Robert held a high-ranking role in the Ford Motor Company, and Lori was a former model and part-time actress. The two of them traveled often, leaving Robin alone for his formative years. To cope with the loneliness, Robin would create characters and voices and bring to life a vast collection of toy soldiers. Since both Robert and Lori had a child from previous marriages, Robin also had two half-siblings that he didn't meet until he was about 10 years old. Both of Robin's parents played a major role in his love of comedy, but he would credit his mother for being the one to show him the joy of making others laugh. She had a sight gag that she would often use at parties that involved her placing a broken rubber band up her nose and pretending to sneeze. She would then let the rubber string dangle to great comic effect. Oh, man. You just picture that. It's like, ooh. (laughs) They are fairly wealthy people. 
yeah. is a high-ranking member at Ford. They're probably yeah. she's probably doing it th- this at some pretty fancy parties. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Robin would later describe his father as a good man, but a tough laugh. The two didn't have a lot in common, but sometimes Robert would let his son stay up with him to watch Tonight starring Jack Parr. Robin remembered one time specifically when comedian Jonathan Winters appeared on the show and made his father burst out laughing. This made Robin take notice of Winters, who would become one of his biggest influences. Winters was famous for his improvisational skills. Robin loved to recount the time he called Jonathan Winters his mentor, and Jonathan said, Please, I prefer Idol. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) Robin attended an all-boys school and was on the football team. Any rebellious nature he had, he kept from his parents, showing good grades and manners. But when he was 17, the Williams family moved to San Francisco. The new environment changed everything for Robin. It was here that he performed for the first time, doing an impression of a particularly animated teacher at his public high school. This quiet, nervous kid now made a remarkable discovery. When he was performing, he could be someone else. And the inhibitions of his normal personality faded away. Yeah, he said it was total culture shock. When he switched to California, he went from a private school where he wore a suit and a tie every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he would wear that because that was what he thought you wore to school. And the kids teased him and called him a nerd. <sighs> and it took him a while. And he, he switched to a different wardrobe. And then I guess while he was there, someone gave him his first Hawaiian shirt that just Ooh. changed his life. Oh, man. Yes. <laughs> there you go. After attending an all-boys college... To study political science, Robin dropped out and received a scholarship to Juilliard, where he met his longtime friend and roommate, Christopher Reeve. Yeah! Wow. I don't know if you guys know this from watching movies, but Juilliard is very prestigious. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And not only getting accepted to Juilliard, but having a scholarship to Juilliard. Yeah, a full one. It's a big deal. Juilliard gave Robin skills that he would use for the rest of his career. He was a skilled actor with a remarkable memory and ability to project without a microphone. He could form a connection with audiences, and he fell in love with improvisation. (laughs) Oh, yeah, you better believe that. (laughs) After college, Williams moved back to California and would perform on the street as well as in comedy clubs like the Holy City Zoo where he started as a bartender. This would also be where he met his first wife, Valerie Villardi. The two were married for 10 years, and Robin remarried Marcia Garces in 1989. Him and Marcia were together for 21 years and had two children, Zelda and Cody. In 2011, Robin married his third wife, Susan. Robin Williams burst onto the comedy scene, forging lasting relationships with other up-and-coming comedic acts, like David Letterman and Billy Crystal. In the documentary, Come Inside My Mind, Letterman recounted seeing Williams' wildly funny and energetic performances, wondering if his own comedy career would soon be over. All I could do was hold on to a microphone for dear life, Letterman said. And he was levitating. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. 
That's that's huge. I mean, somebody like that, we all know the name Letterman, right? Yeah. To 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 look at somebody else, have him look at somebody else and think, oh man, I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> Williams thrived as a performer in front of live audiences, and it was these performances that got him cast in his first TV appearance. Yeah. Also, it mentioned Billy Crystal, too, where they mm-hmm. became friends, and yeah. Billy Crystal and him were friends until Robin died. They were friends for yeah, were pretty much their whole lives. Since, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. When producer George Schlatter saw one of Williams' shows in the late 1970s, he cast him in a special called The Great American Laugh-Off. A love poem. I love you in blue. I love you in red. But most of all, I love you in blue. <laughs> I'll take you this way and then that way. <laughs> Robin was a hit and was later added as a cast member in the revival of Laugh-In. We will link to a video of this performance as he's seen wearing his famous rainbow suspenders. Yay. Yay I love those so much. It's something that you, you don't see in later Robin Williams stuff. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. he does a lot more like... Not completely serious roles, but, you know, and, and more serious. Yeah. And he doesn't do the stand-up quite as much. But that old-school Robin Williams, you yeah. love to see those, man. <laughs> you know, as soon as you see those, you're like, this is one of the good ones right here. Yeah. the It's actually funny. My dad is a clown, and he is a, he's a hobo clown. Uh-huh. He wears this long black coat yeah. with rips and patches mm-hmm. in it that my mom sewed <laughs> on. And... um. Underneath, he actually wears rainbow suspenders. Oh, nice. Yeah, That's and it's amazing. it's funny because it's a very dark costume that he <laughs> yeah. wears. It's just like gray <laughs> and black, and there's just colorful patches, but he's got rainbow suspenders, and I always loved those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the mid-1970s, Happy Days was the number one show on ABC, but producer Gary Marshall's son remarked that he was no longer watching it. When Marshall asked his son what would make him want to watch the show again, his son said that he wished there would be spacemen in the show. <laughs> so Marshall decided to write one in. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> one powerful kid right there. <laughs> yeah. When it was time to hold auditions for Mork, a quirky alien from the planet Ork, someone who had seen Robin Williams as a street performer suggested him for the role. Gary Marshall asked if he should really hire a kid that stands on the sidewalk with a hat to be on his major TV show. And the person replied, it's a pretty full hat. <laughs> oh, yes. Absolutely. Dude, I mean, looking back, you got to think, why would you ever, like, hesitate? It's like, oh, Robin, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. You know? It's got to be It's got to be so weird sometimes being a producer or someone, yeah. a writer like that or a casting director because you're you're out there and someone will say something like that. Well, I saw this great performer on the street and you're thinking... This could also this could be a total lead to nowhere, yep. mm-hmm. or it could be one of the greatest stars of our generation. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, go with it or not. Flip yeah. a coin, I guess. <laughs> so Robin came in to audition and did so well that he was cast on the spot. The showrunners knew immediately that Williams was perfect for the role when they asked him to sit down, and he sat on his head, a gag used in Happy Days and later Mork and Mindy. <laughs> I remember the. <laughs> Oh, my God. The first time I watched Mork and Mindy, and I'd never seen it, and I remember that first episode when he sat on his head, and I thought that was very funny. (laughs) (laughs) 
Marshall reportedly said that he was the only alien to show up for the part. Aha. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I see that. Perfect, yeah. The episode tested well with audiences, and Happy Days brought back Mork for another episode later on. You know, they always, they credit Happy Days for coming up with the term jumping the shark. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Really? Was jumping over a shark the most far-fetched thing? <laughs> An alien legit just lands mm -hmm. outside of the Cunningham's house, and they're like, wow, this is quirky. And that's it. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, wow, this is sure as a happy day. Yeah. I, we should start using a new term. We should start calling it like adding in Mork. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of jumping the shark, like, oh, man, they're adding Mork. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed to be a no-brainer that Mork should get his own show. So Marshall brought on actress Pam Dauber to play opposite Robin Williams in a show about an alien that lives with a woman in present-day Boulder, Colorado. The show gave Mork a new mission. He was to investigate the strange customs of the inhabitants of Earth and report back to his superior, a faceless voice named Orson. When children are young, they're told not to talk to strangers. Then when they go to school, they're told not to talk to the person next to them. And finally, when they get to be very old, they're told not to talk to themselves. Who's left? Are you saying that Earthlings make each other lonely? No, sir, I'm saying just the opposite, that they make themselves lonely. They're so busy looking out for number one, they don't have room for two. It's too bad everybody down there can't get together and find a cure. Well, here's the paradox, sir, because if they did get together, they wouldn't need one. The show turned Robin Williams into a household name. He was making more money than ever, and he found a home in front of a live studio audience. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's like the perfect transition from where he was to acting, mm -hmm. working in front of a studio audience, because it probably would have been harder to just go from the street to a camera. Yeah. Because I'm mm -hmm. sure he pulls a lot of energy from the audience laughing and stuff like that. So the studio audience is the perfect way to do that. Pam Dauber, actually, she also said that he did. He fed from the audience. And there were a few times when they had to record without an audience for some oh, really? reason or other. Huh. And she said those were the worst times. <laughs> she was like, it was... It was not a good day for Robin on yeah. those days. Yeah, I, I imagine not only because of like feeding off the energy, but it probably is just more fun mm -hmm. to have that immediate feedback. Yeah. yeah. Right? It's like you're immediately making these people laugh. I'm doing great. Um, and one of the things that I hear from like interviews and stuff uh, for comedians is that they some of them take a lot of pride in being able to, they say, pop the crew. You know, ah, yes. if they can get the crew to laugh, they know that that's got to be super funny, <laughs> you know, so that's like a goal. And I imagine it's very similar, like on those yes. days, if the crew's being very professional and you can't get them to break, yeah. it's like, ah, oh, man, maybe I'm not funny enough. If you get them to break, you know, you're, you're, yeah, a winner. you're good. good. Yeah. yeah. Sometime during the second season was when Robin started using drugs more heavily than he had before. He was friends with John Belushi, who had visited the set of Mork and Mindy on a day when Robin's idol, Jonathan Winters, was a special guest. And they said John Belushi would even shush people. <laughs> uh, Jonathan Winters would be rehearsing, and someone would talk to him and go, shh, shh, shh. I I'm, I'm watching. <laughs> <laughs> Got important things to say here. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. Robin visited with Belushi on the same night that he passed away from a drug overdose. The absolute shock and devastation of losing a close friend to drugs prompted Robin to get sober. This is an excerpt from the biography Robin by David Itzkoff, which is really good. Everyone should read it. Mm -hmm. Recounting the moment that Pam Dauber had to tell Robin about Belushi's death. 
So I just want to preface this for a second. So he went up to hang out with him and they he said that, you know, Belushi played guitar, but he was really kind of out of it. Mm-hmm. He said he told him he was really sleepy because he took quaaludes and and Robin said, oh, okay, it's time for me to go home then. You know, you're mm-hmm. t- you want to go to bed. So he just left. And when he went home, he told his wife, <sighs> you know, he John was so stoned he could barely stand. But what happened after he had left was that the woman that he was with prepared speed balls for them both, which is a mixture of heroin and cocaine. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. And she gave it to John Belushi. And he... She put basically tucked him into bed and turned on the thermostat because he was cold, he said. Mm-hmm. And he died in his sleep. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. So this is from the book. Dauber waited for a discreet moment when she and Robin were walking back from the Paramount Commissary. I said, I've got something really terrible to tell you, Robin. He went, what? What? And I said that John Belushi was found dead last night. Robin found it incomprehensible to hear about someone he had seen only a few hours earlier. He went, what? I was with him last night. I was with him last night, Dauber said. She could see that Robin was in pain, but wanted to make sure he did not ignore the larger lesson in all of this. I said, Robin, if that ever happens to you, I will find you and kill you first. Oh, man. (laughs) That's as horrible as it is. I mean, it's a wake-up call. And, it, mm-hmm. and I guess it worked. And it was really sad because he said he was like, it was this guy that he could do anything. He could do anything. And then he's just, he's gone. Yeah. yeah. In, in those moments, I mean, you probably feel invincible. You're like, I'm doing so well and making so much money. It's my friend, John freaking Belushi, who's yeah. also making so much money. Yeah. We're yeah. on top of the world. Around this time, Robin's oldest son, Zach, was born. This was another incentive for Williams to get sober. After four seasons, Mork and Mindy ended. Robin closed the book on the show that made him a star and set his sights on bigger things. He continued to perform stand-up shows, proving himself as the king of improvisation. He would perform sets that he hadn't written or rehearsed beforehand, and he felt free to perform without the rules of a network holding him back. That Mm -hmm. is like unparalleled talent. Being yeah, able yeah. to go out on a stage and wing it. Yep. Mm-hmm. And people love it. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't imagine, <laughs> let alone having like it down like yeah. a script yeah. to just read from. Yeah. Doing it from nowhere. My God. Exactly. And yeah. I was reading one of his, one of his like scripts, quote unquote scripts. <laughs> and it was like him and his writer put it together. And it was basically just an outline. <laughs> <laughs> and it said, it, it was an outline. It just said, cats. At the top, and then it was like funny meows, and then it was just oh my like, gosh. and then it was all these different kinds of meows that a cat would do, or whatever. Amazing. And I'm, I'm yeah. looking at it, I'm like, this is so vague. Yeah, I feel like it's what our teachers always wanted us to do. They always wanted us to have that kind of an outline oh, and then yeah. just speak. Yeah, and like, you know, none of us ever could. No. I could never do that. No, way, man. <laughs> no. Oh my god, and we did. We don't do that on this show. No. Yeah, don't read from your PowerPoint. Just have. Why not? Yeah. I wrote it. I... <laughs> Exactly. But he he did say that these these stand-up shows was really what kept him sane through this time. Yeah. The end of the show also freed Robin to focus on a newer chapter of his career. Movies! <laughs> Although he didn't become a movie star right out of the gate, once he found his footing as a film actor, he didn't look back. In fact, he didn't return to TV for nearly three decades. 
he's done about a billion and one things, and we love him for it, all mm-hmm. of them. But of course, we like we said, we would be here for days <laughs> if we yes. wanted to cover them all. <laughs> so we're just gonna go through some of his most influential roles. Yeah, mm-hmm. just a few that he's mem- remembered for. They were a big important part of his life. Right. Yeah. Popeye was Robin Williams's first feature film, and ultimately one that he would consider a disappointment. It wasn't necessarily a critical darling, and although it didn't flop, it never reached number one at the box office. For the next few years, Williams would star in films like The World According to Garp and Moscow on the Hudson, but he still felt that he wasn't winning film audiences over. However, The World According to Garp gave him the chance to be in more in a more serious role where he had to commit to the lines. He was able to build on this and show that he had a wider range than just comedy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was in high school and my English teacher was talking about Robin Williams. And she said, Robin Williams could speak in couplets on a dime <laughs> if he wanted to. Oh. Wow. Because he's so in tune with the way Shakespeare wrote his plays Mm -hmm. because he's a classically trained dramatic actor and i think none of us just really thought of him that way like yeah we didn't realize that but yeah there was so much that that built into the person that we saw yeah we all kind of saw a final product of Mm -hmm. (laughs) a lot of different things it really reminds me of what we were told in art class where it's like you have to know the basics. Once you know and can master the basics, then you can do the crazy off-the-wall stuff yeah. that you want to do. Right. But you have to know the basics and build on those to do the crazy stuff. Yeah, man. It, yeah. And it's so hard to do that, you know? You, you have to be so patient. Yeah. So patient <laughs> yes. and so disciplined. Yeah. Like, like even doing the art for, the, for these episodes every week, I'm just like, ah, just... Be what I want. Be, be what I'm picturing right now, and I just can't. And then I have to like take a step back and yeah. reevaluate. But it's really commendable that somebody's mm-hmm. able to do that and like apply it so perfectly. Yeah. yeah. It may seem crazy, but there was a time when there were doubts about Robin's abilities. The movies. Oh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the movies that he had been in before Good Morning Vietnam had not done well, and so the industry and Touchstone Pictures had their doubts. Barry Levinson, the movie's director and fellow Comedy Stores player member, knew that Robin would be perfect for the role. This was Robin's first film to do well and be the number one movie at the box office. It was his big break into the movie scene and to move beyond just stand-up and television. Good morning, Vietnam! Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll! 33 years ago, this month, Good Morning Vietnam came to theaters. Hours of material were ad-libbed for those radio scenes. Oh, how cool, man. <laughs> yeah. Could you could you imagine just talking for hours into this mic, guys? Just Dude, I I mean, <laughs> tough stuff. If, no one, if, I, it? if I didn't have to edit it, then uh, <clears throat> it'd be easier. I'd be fine with it, but <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Maybe we should turn this podcast into a radio show. And if you don't catch it live, then Ooh. sorry. I kind of like that because it cuts out all my editing. Hey. <laughs> yes. hey, let's think about it. But then I'm not there as a safety net. Don't say bad stuff. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you wouldn't believe the stuff I cut out of this <laughs> show. <laughs> So the first director of Dead Poets Society, Jeff Canoe, actually wanted Liam Neeson for the role of Keating, 
which is the role that Robin Williams plays. But Touchstone Pictures, a.k.a. Disney's Jeffrey Katzenberg, wanted Robin Williams. Robin never said yes or no to taking the part of Keating, but his deafening silence toward working with Canoe on the project was noticed. (laughs) Touchstone gambled and had everything set for the first day of shooting with hopes that Robin would show up. He did not. Wow. <laughs> what a day that must have oh, been. Oh, man. Oh, my God. Lose an entire day of shooting. <sighs> yeah. Luckily, after a few changes, especially to a new director, he accepted the part and things got rolling. <laughs> you imagine getting fired from a movie as the director because Robin Williams just doesn't want to work with you? <laughs> I mean, at the time, he was probably like, oh, that son of a... Well, who does he think he is? Yeah. But to the rest of us and, you know, maybe him looking back mm-hmm. is like, well, I mean. This is a great, great, great movie. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it was probably the way to go. Yeah. <laughs> Director Peter Weir, when talking about whether or not Robin would pull this role off, said that although he was known as a funny man, he had met Robin and the role he wanted him to play would be a mixture of the real Robin and a little of his character from the world according to Garp. At first, it was hard for him to get into the role, but once he was given a little free reign for improvisation on teaching the boys, it all clicked. We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race, and the human race is filled with passion. Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, Romance, love. These are what we stay alive for. Yeah. He was kind of stiff with it at first. Mm-hmm. He's having a hard time. And so the director, Peter Weir, was like, hey, you know what? What do you want to teach the boys? And Robin Williams was like, Shakespeare. <laughs> and yeah. so he's like, uh-huh. okay. And obviously we know Robin knows a lot about yes. Shakespeare. Yeah. So he was like, okay, go with it. Do it. And so after that, it was just like, bam. Yeah. (laughs) He got it. Yeah. Yeah. At that point, he's like actually teaching. Yeah. And they're just recording it. It's like, make sure you get these couple lines in there. But for the rest of it, like, (laughs) wing it, man. Shakespeare, do it. Dante Bosco, who plays the role of Rufio in the movie Hook, would often discuss the Dead Poets Society and poems with Robin. He was an aspiring poet. And so at the end of shooting, Robin gifted him with a limited edition of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. As a result, he ended up opening a very successful venue in America called the Poetry Lounge. Oh, so cool. How cool is that? I also love that, like, as these movies, as he gets older in these movies, he's playing more mature roles. Mm-hmm. He kind of starts to be more fatherly. Because yeah, this, yeah. is, this is kind of how a lot of us saw him. A lot of us saw him as, like, a fatherly person. Yeah. In an article Thomas Tulick wrote about the antics on the set of Hook, he's just about got everyone calmed down, and he starts to give instructions. When Robin climbs to the top of the pirate ship behind Stephen and moons everyone. Needless to say, Stephen lost control of the situation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, like, Steven Spielberg can't control. Yeah. <laughs> or I can't imagine how frustrating but hilarious that would be. Oh, yeah. You know, like, Steven Spielberg obviously... An incredibly talented director. He's up yes. there. He's, he's like, people should listen to me, for I am in charge. <laughs> right. And I am good at what I do. 
and he's trying to get people to listen and mm-hmm. then Robin Williams legit stands up behind him and just shows his butt to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> That's the end of that. I mean, yeah. I mean, break for lunch at that point. Yeah. <laughs> Not coming back from Like, it. that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The hardest part for Robin to play in this movie was Peter Banning. Spielberg said that it was the antithesis of who Robin was. Yeah, but he was so good at it. He really was. Yeah. 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 Robin Williams always reminded me of my dad. And mm-hmm. I think this is the movie that always really made me feel like that. In this movie, they look a little similar. They dress kind of the same. <laughs> yeah. They're yeah. about the same age and everything, too. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it really is. I mean, your dad is really good at improving jokes and all that stuff, <laughs> yeah. too. So it's like they really are like... They're alternate reality yeah, versions of each other. Is exactly. what, I, what I always thought, because they do have a lot of similarities, but mm-hmm. very some very intense differences. Right. So at the time that they were, Disney decided to make Aladdin, Robin Williams had become a well-known star, and Ron Clements and John Musker specifically wrote the role of genie for Robin. I mean, undoubtable. <laughs> undoubtable. Yes, I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> they were incredibly inspired by a short called Back to Neverland, where Robin is taken around by Walter Cronkite to the world of Disney animation and is taken to the animated world of Peter Pan. Which I think is so cute. That yes. sounds wonderful. Because he was in Hook after mm-hmm. that. I want that to be like the pre-ride show at like Disneyland before you go <laughs> on like a Peter Pan ride. That I mean, would be cool. You watch oh this and then go on the ride. Then, oh, oh that would be awesome. That would be wonderful. In order to pay respect and recall back to this short, Musker and Clements had animators draw Genie at the end of the movie wearing the same yellow wild shirt and goofy hat as he does at the beginning of Back to Neverland. Son of a gun. Yeah. See, the more you know. Because I had always wondered that. I was yep. like, I guess he's I guess he's just looking like a tourist. Yeah, kind. I thought yeah. it was so funny that he wore a goofy hat. Yeah. <laughs> at the end of the like, movie. like, oh, nice Disney reference. I guess he's just a tourist, whatever. Look there at you that. Go. Yes. There's yes. a lot more meaning to it. That's fantastic. Yes, I also believe these two directors have them animated in, in a lot of the movies that they direct to. Oh, that's so cool. That's yeah. amazing. Robin at first did not want the part because he felt that the Disney contract was too strict. He finally agreed to do the film because Katzenberg convinced him to do it for his young kids so they could see their dad in something. He did, however, have some stipulations that he gave Disney. Some of these include Genie could not be in more than 25% of the poster image. They couldn't use his name or voice for marketing the movie. And that no Happy Meal toys be made of Genie. His goal was not to overshadow the movie that he had committed to first with Barry Levinson called Toys. Sadly, Toys would bomb at the box office, and Disney would break their promises of using his celebrity to promote Aladdin. Yep, the one and yeah. only Robin Williams and then show a clip of Genie. So it's like, yeah, I remember that vividly. And mm. even for the... Him in the sound booth. Yep. yep doing yep. the arms mm-hmm. and stuff. And for... Um, when he came back for Aladdin 3. Yes, and once again, yeah. Genie mm-hmm. will be played by Robin Williams. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it was a big s- selling point for the third movie. This would lead to his anger at the studio and reason for not appearing in Return of Jafar. Fortunately for us, however, Robin had free reign in this feature and reportedly recorded 16 hours of riffing, which the film cut down and brilliantly animated for the film. I'm your master? That's right! He can be taught! What would you wish of me? The ever impressive. The one contained. But never duplicated. 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 Genie of the lamp. 
right here, direct from the lamp, right here for your very much wish fulfillment. Can we have that? Yeah. Just can, 16 hours. Can we yeah, have just... 16 hours of Genie? <laughs> just talking, I, please. I remember reading about this years ago, and they said that he should have been given a co-writer credit for a lot. Oh, yeah. 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 Because he came up with that so much sense. stuff as Genie that they had to animate. I love that. Because we, we, we don't know what was really ad-libbed. I mean, you get an idea. Yeah. But, but there's one line that I'm convinced is an ad-lib that they kept in where, where he's like, there's you get three wishes, uno, dos, tres. And he goes, no substitutions, extensions, or refunds. <laughs> and I'm like, that was yes. totally him because that's something he does in like stand-up. He'll just yeah. quickly do another yeah. character and then come yeah. right back. Like That is totally a Robin Williams bit. And it's really nice. In an interview, when he was asked about it, he gave so much credit to the animators. He's Aww. like, you know, oh, yeah. I did a lot, but honestly, like the animators. Yeah. Yeah, because the thing about the genie, they can have him be anywhere at the same time. Yeah. yeah. Magic. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. When he's a B. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Be yourself. <laughs> yeah. He was honestly amazed at what they kept in. Oh. <laughs> Let's go watch Aladdin. Yes. <laughs> so... When Joe Roth took over for Disney, he gave a formal apology from Disney to Robin. This is what allowed Mrs. Doubtfire to be greenlit. Anne Fine, the author of the book, alias Madame Doubtfire, that the film is based on, pictured Warren Beatty as the lead. How different the movie would have been. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, she <sighs> said she pictured this, like, macho man being <laughs> a I, Mrs. Doubtfire. I mean... <laughs> To be fair, it would have been pretty funny. See, that is the kind of movie that would happen now. Yeah. They wouldn't cast someone like Robin Williams Mm -hmm. now. They would cast The Rock. Yeah, that's (laughs) true. You know, they would cast Vin Diesel. They would would, catch, yeah. Yeah, they would would cast somebody who's, you know, big and serious. Um, (laughs) Please pick The Rock over Vin Diesel. (laughs) (laughs) You're not a fan of the the pacifier? I... You know, the, the it's classic, okay, the pacifier. <laughs> but I think the, the Rock is a little bit better for that. Oh, okay. Anyway. okay. anyway. Okay. True to form, two to three cameras had to be kept on Robin as he moved about freely during filming. Robin wanted to make sure that his costume for Mrs. Doubtfire worked, and so therefore he tested it in a few different ways. One way he did this was to wear it to an adult store to buy intimate objects. <laughs> It worked, and it took the clerk quite a while to finally figure out that it was actually Robin. Wow. <laughs> and you had to know he had oh, to have been man. making so many, like, yeah. oh, my gosh. Imagine having that happen and not realizing it, and then later finding out that Robin Williams <laughs> yeah, you, like, came you, to your You, like, store. see the trailer for Mrs. Uh-huh. Doubtfire, and you're like, oh, wait a minute. That's oh, a regular. Oh, my gosh. I know Son that's a regular. <laughs> <laughs> The other test came when they were casting Matthew Lawrence and Mara Wilson as the children. They wanted to get the kids' true reactions. <laughs> Lisa Jacob, who played the eldest daughter, said about the movie that, I have had so many people come up to me and want to talk about this because it was so meaningful to them and really helped them get through their parents' divorce. This idea that this might not be the way that you thought your life was going to be that doesn't mean that it's bad or wrong. You're going to be okay. And that's a really powerful message. Oh, yeah. And some live in separate homes and separate neighborhoods in different areas of the country, and they may not see each other. 
for days, weeks, months, or even years at a time. But if there's love, dear, those are the ties that bind. And you'll have a family in your heart forever. All my love to you, Poppet. You're going to be all right. It, it's powerful. Yeah. And they, they almost, they actually fired the writer because he wrote the ending where they didn't end up together. Because, you know, you want happy endings. Oh, yeah. But wow. then it didn't test well or something, and so they ended up hiring him back and having that, that original ending. Yeah. I love that they don't end up together. Yeah. It it makes the message of the movie so much clearer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, it, it's okay that they're divorced. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, like sometimes this happens. There were reports that multiple cuts of the movie were made. One for PG, PG-13, <laughs> R, and even <laughs> NC-17. What Depending on what Robin ad-libbed. <laughs> wow. <laughs> What did he do? <laughs> well, he 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 dropped f bombs at least twice. <laughs> at least. The final cut they chose was, of course, the PG thirteen. Yet I know a lot of kids were still allowed to watch it. I didn't know this was PG thirteen. me. <laughs> and you know, I we watched it so much as kids, and then I watched it fairly recently as an adult. And I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, this this is this does have a lot of adult things yeah. in it. Oh yeah, and you just when you're a kid, it just goes right over your head. Yeah, yeah. don't even notice it. Mm-hmm. There were two scenes that were also cut from the film for being too heartbreaking. We watched them, and <sighs> yeah, we agree. Yeah, um... we we might link <laughs> to it, but. <sighs> Watch at your own be, risk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah be forewarned. <laughs> yeah, sad, some sad scenes. The director, Joe Johnston, said that TriStar Pictures told them that they would make the movie Jumanji if they could get Robin to be in it. <laughs> Lol. <laughs> the first script was passed by Robin, and so the team spent the entire night revising the script. Luckily, the next screenplay was accepted, and he said yes. Yeah, cool. Excellent. Young 12-year-old Bradley Pierce had to have makeup put on for three hours a day to become the monkey boy. Since Robin had to go through a similar time recently being made up as Mrs. Doubtfire, he kindly kept Bradley company and gave advice as he sat in the chair. Aww, that was really sweet. Bonnie Hunt said of the movie, Kids always remember the first movie that makes their hearts pound. Then that feeling becomes nostalgic, and you want to revisit it and share it with a new generation. She's so right. Because, Absolutely mm-hmm. about this Yeah, I, I remember seeing this for the first time. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, this movie was <laughs> so good. <laughs> and, it, and it's wonderful. I quote it. Almost every day when I say, <laughs> what year is it? Yeah. Oh and I'm God. thinking I'm thinking of Robin Williams in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, a lot of people probably agree with us mm-hmm. because it was a huge hit, making $262.8 million worldwide. Yeah. That's man. huge. Oh, oh yeah. my God. So good. Oh, man. I was always so afraid of that gigantic crocodile that shows up in the house because I'm like, how big is that? Because (laughs) we're only seeing the top of it. It's gigantic. The the scene when they're in the room 
mm-hmm. and they're in the attic, and so the room is all dark with just a little bit of light from the window. Yeah. And they read the clue for the lion, and they yeah. look at each other, and they're like, what does that mean? And then you hear Detail. you hear the piano, <laughs> and you hear this this very low growl at the bottom of the yeah. base of his throat. Oh yeah! Oh my god! <laughs> it's like you know what I mean. It's yeah. so good. <laughs> Goodwill Hunting gave Robin Williams his only Academy Award for the role of Sean McGuire. He got a standing ovation when he won that award. Oh, cool oh, man! Absolutely. Yeah. Although Williams had proved he was a strong dramatic actor, hence Juilliard. This role really proved his range. It is now one of his best-known performances, and fans of the movie often take trips to the public bench in Boston, where one of the film's most iconic scenes takes place. In one scene, Williams improvised a line about his late wife farting in her sleep. My wife used to fart when she was nervous. She had all sorts of wonderful little idiosyncrasies. <laughs> you know, she used to fart in her sleep. <laughs> I'm sorry I shared that with you. One night it was so loud it woke the dog up. <laughs> she woke up and got like, oh, was that you? See, I didn't have the heart to tell her. <laughs> oh, God. She woke herself up. <laughs> the story made Matt Damon and Williams both break into laughter. And if you look closely, you can see the camera shaking because the cameraman was also laughing. Got him. (laughs) He broke the crew. Yeah, it's really funny. Fantastic. They said if you analyze the scene, right? Yeah. He starts telling the story and you can kind of see Matt Damon look off a little bit. And people are like, yeah, like like he's looking at the director like, should should I just go with this? Or, you know, it's like, of course you should. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's the kind of gold that when you see that happening, you got it on camera, you're like, yeah. Can we go home now? <laughs> yeah. Cut. Print. <laughs> Done. End it. Robin said that the quietest person in the room is the one to look out for. The line in Goodwill Hunting, where his character grabs Damon by the throat and says, I will end you, comes from when Robin saw a large guy at a bar picking on a smaller dude, and the smaller dude was quiet until he had enough. He pointed and said, I will end you, and the larger guy walked away. <sighs> <laughs> there's nothing more finite than that yeah. you know yep. if you want it to stop then and there that's what you say I will end you <laughs> <laughs> Patch Adams was a way to show Robin's care for children especially those fighting cancer or other ailments it was a way to show that laughter really can be the best medicine Cameron Brooke Stanley was only 7 years old undergoing treatment for her kidney in real life and cast with a speaking role. She remembers Robin fondly as he cared for the children's comfort and well-being first and foremost. As of 2014, she was 22 and living in San Jose, free of cancer. Patch Adams, after hearing of Robin's passing, had this to say to Time magazine. I'm enormously grateful for his wonderful performance of my early life which has allowed the Gesundheit Institute to continue and expand our work. We extend our blessings to his family and friends in this moment of sadness. Thank you for all you've given this world, Robin. Thank you, my friend. Robin Williams' last roles were Night at the Museum, Secret of the Tomb, and absolutely anything. Yeah. Night at the Museum, Secret of the Tomb was actually his last... Live action role. Mm -hmm. Absolutely anything, he was a voice. So Robin Williams had some contributions to American pop culture, pop culture in general. A couple. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
When performing, Robin had a lot of energy and would move freely about in the space that he was given. He was very unpredictable. Due to this, he was the reason that a fourth camera was brought in to the sitcom format during Mork and Mindy. Up to that point, they were all three-camera sitcoms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They brought in specifically to capture Robin because he was not hitting his marks. <laughs> so they had a fourth camera that would actually just follow him around. Yeah. yeah. One of the interviews, they were talking about this, and the cameraman was getting really frustrated with him. Yeah. As you would. Yeah. Because the director, director was like, are you getting this? Or, did you get that? Yeah, because he's doing it? crazy stuff. You know, he's like, did you yeah. get it? And he was like, no. He's like, this is a really great actor. Like, if this is such a great actor, he can hit his mark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, the cameraman, that's what he's most concerned about. So it's like, yeah. Yeah, it's like, if I can't capture him, we can't put it in the episode. Like, I don't care how funny it is. <laughs> he's not in frame. <laughs> Robin Williams did a lot of charity work. Here are just a few organizations that he put his time, money, and talents toward. So you might remember some of these ads. Uh, the, the ads for St. Jude's Hospital, they would air in the theater. And we would often see them before they played in the trailers. He was a big supporter and would spend whatever time he could to visit the children and families. I think that's so sweet. Yeah. Since he was a close and personal friend with Christopher Reeve, he committed four years of his life on the board of the Christopher Reeve and Dana Reeve Foundation. He went to several of the fundraising events and made sure to talk to as many people as he could. The foundation raises money for research towards spinal cord injuries. Robin would financially support this foundation as much as he could. Comic Relief was a special telethon organized by Bob's Muda that had Billy Crystal, Whoopi Goldberg, and Robin Williams as the hosts. Its purpose was to raise money and awareness to the homelessness and healthcare services. The three of them would host a total of eight of the telethons starting in 1986. I feel like I remember seeing some of these. Yeah. Because I remember that group of people being together. Yeah, mm -hmm. it seems like a perf like like a common group of people. Yeah. Yeah. He was always willing to go and visit the soldiers overseas, with many performances over his 12 years of involvement with the USO. He would pose for so many pictures with troops that he would often have to be practically dragged away from them. Wow. Aww. That's that same thing where it's just like off the energy of the crowd, yeah. feeling yep. it, they were having that good time. Right. <laughs> you just don't want to leave that. Yeah. It's on yeah. fire. In the biography that I read, one of the first things that they say about him was that if he... If he sensed that you wanted something from him, he wanted you to have it. Aww. It was kind of like, you know, if he, if he thought that posing with you was going to make you happy, he would do it. And it, I feel yeah. like, you know, wow. yeah, he had a, he just had a difficult time saying no to people. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time to his own expense, <laughs> right? you know, because that's just, you know, the kind of person that he was. So he may have gotten his one Oscar, but he did get a <laughs> bunch of other awards. Yeah. So we're going to list those here. He got a Cecil B. DeMille Award in 2005. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. He was a Golden Globe winner for his role in Mrs. Doubtfire, Aladdin, The Fisher King, Good Morning Vietnam, and Mork and Mindy. Hey. So that's a lot. He also got an Emmy for roles in ABC Presents, A Royal Gala, Carol, Carol, Whoopi, and Robin <laughs> as well. He also got an award from... The Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films for his roles in One Hour Photo and Aladdin. Nice. Also, American Comedy Awards for Mrs. Doubtfire, Comic Relief 3, Comic Relief 87, <laughs> <laughs> Good Morning Vietnam, Robin Williams Live at the Met. Oh, my gosh. 
1988 and 89, he won the Funniest Male Stand-Up Comic. <laughs> and in 89, he also won Funniest Male Performer of the Year. That's awesome. That, that is so, so cool, man. Yeah, for the whole year. <laughs> I, and I feel like, as we're going through this list, I'm like, you know what? These awards are great. You, Oscar, and Oscar's nice, but like these are really yeah. like yeah. his jam kind of awards, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He won these along with several others and many more nominations. He even won a few Grammys, like one for the soundtrack for Good, Good Morning Vietnam. Robin Williams had an unparalleled mind. He relied on his ability to think on his feet, as well as his extraordinary memory that he inherited from his dad. One of his brothers, one of his half-brothers said that that's, what, that's where he got that memory from. Near the end of his career, Robin was still getting steady work. He starred in a sitcom called The Crazy Ones and made appearances in all three Night at the Museum films. But despite outward appearance, Robin and his wife Susan noticed something was wrong. In October of 2013, around the time of their two-year anniversary, Williams started experiencing what his wife would call a firestorm of symptoms. Among these were paranoia and memory loss. For months, there were no answers on what could be causing these issues. Susan Schneider Williams, his wife, remembers her husband calling her while he was filming the final night at the museum movie. He was having a panic attack because he couldn't remember his lines. A month later, he was given the devastating diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. Hmm. Symptoms would change and worsen as time went on. Robin was confused and distraught. He seemed to be losing his ability to judge depth, and at times he would get caught in a frozen stance, unable to break out of it. On August 11, 2014, Williams' assistant found the comedian unresponsive in his home. He had died of an apparent suicide. The news of Robin Williams' death shook his fans from all over the world. It was an unbelievable loss. Robin Williams was the kind of person that seemed untouchable, invincible. Uh, do you guys remember when you found out? Yeah. Because I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember exactly where I was and where I was sitting. And I don't remember exactly what time it was, but I remember that it was raining outside. Mm-hmm. And... um. That would sucked a lot because yeah, I just was yeah. browsing my phone and I was like, <gasps> unbelievable. Total. All of my mm-hmm. air is gone from my lungs. My heart is now pounding out of my chest. Yeah. And I'm my night is ru- my night is ruined. Yeah. I mean, oh, my gosh. Yeah. It was like finding out someone you knew had died. Yeah. 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 It was something it was such a weird sensation, you know. Mm-hmm. Because you you were like I know I don't I didn't really know him mm-hmm. you know but you have that feeling that mm-hmm. feeling of like I feel like I'm mourning him. It's it's strange how that works because whenever a famous person passes away and they you know they'll make a point to to acknowledge them in the Oscars mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that you know we all if you if you knew their movies or you liked what they did you're like oh that sucks I'm so yeah upset about it whatever. But in this case, yeah, it was something else. It was a next level yeah. kind of reaction. It felt like when you're watching these movies a lot and and you spend a lot of time with these people, you know, you let these people into your homes and, mm-hmm. you know, they mm-hmm. they watch your kids, you know, <laughs> maybe yeah, sometimes yeah. for you while you're kind of busy or, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's a whole part of your life that you know you you feel like you know that person mm-hmm. yeah and yeah. there's just also this kind of comfort even if you don't know a celebrity there's still this kind of comfort knowing they're still alive 
Yeah. And, so, yeah. and like that, you know, the comfort is totally gone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was such a shock, too. President Obama said of his death, Robin Williams was an airman, a doctor, a genie, a nanny, a president, a professor, a bangerang Peter Pan, and everything in between. But he was one of a kind. He arrived in our lives as an alien, but he ended up touching every element of the human spirit. He made us laugh. He made us cry. He gave his immeasurable talent freely and generously to those who needed it most. From our troops stationed abroad to the marginalized on our own streets. His manner of death sparked many discussions on mental illness, more specifically depression. The incident seemed to highlight the importance of seeking help and destigmatizing mental illness. In the fall of 2016, a neurology journal published an essay by Susan Schneider Williams called The Terrorist Inside My Husband's Brain. And we're going to link to it so you can actually read that whole. And I would, yeah. I would recommend people read it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was revealed that after Williams's autopsy, medical professionals discovered Louis bodies in his brain. These are lumps of protein known to cause dementia. Robin Williams had a unique and advanced case of Louis body syndrome that was likely a major factor in his suicide. In the essay, she wrote, I will never know the true depth of his suffering nor just how hard he was fighting. But from where I stood, I saw the bravest man in the world playing the hardest role of his life. Susan Schneider has continued to educate the public about the little-known brain disease that affects 1.4 million Americans. Wow. Yeah, it's not rare. Yeah. But the kind that he had was. Mm-hmm. They said it, they, a lot of the doctors looked at his brain and said that it was probably one of the worst cases they'd ever seen. Wow. And it had to have happened rapidly. You know, I mean, somebody who could just run around, Mm -hmm. do anything, you know, absolutely chaotic energy. And then they can't, sometimes they can't even move. You know, Mm -hmm. it's got to be confusing and frustrating. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he would never know why. In her essay, Robin Williams' wife wrote, Robin is and will always be a larger than life spirit who is inside the body of a normal man with a normal brain. Robin Williams was truly remarkable. There was something in him that we all see in ourselves, yet he was utterly unique. He spoke to us, made us laugh, made us cry, and made us laugh again. On stage, he was lightning personified, striking in unpredictably amusing ways. In life, he was quiet, loving, and at times lonely. He shared with the world the magic of his inextinguishable spark. And although he may be gone... His light will never leave us. I'm gonna go have a good cry now. <laughs> I um, I don't know if I want to watch Aladdin um, tonight anymore. Aww. I'll just wait and then watch it later tomorrow. Maybe. I mean, he was an unparalleled entertainer. Yep. And mm-hmm. I don't think there will ever be one like him ever again. No. Nope. Yeah. Which is very sad. Yeah. But, but also beautiful, you know. Beautiful yeah. in that we have him. Yeah. We had we yeah. had him and he got to give us amazing things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. During his lifetime. And we are forever thankful. Yeah. For yeah. Those. We can share them. I think that is another case closed. Thank you so much for listening to our episode. You can visit blackcasediaries.com for any information about our show and where to find it. 
I mean, you've already obviously found it already. <laughs> but we have another show, too. You can look there for that in no small parts. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Nanu, nanu. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You know, Mork, I think you're beginning to grow. Well, sir, I don't know how much value I have in this universe, but I do know that I made a few people happier than they would have been without me. And as long as I know that, I'm as rich as I ever need to be. So I'll catch you on the rebound, your magnitude. Until next week. Nanu. Nanu. <laughs> <laughs>